Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Despite the American public's anxiety at the state of the world, the United States cannot hunker down behind oceans and walls in hopes that a chaotic world will leave us alone. Nor can we retreat from engagement in any particular region, no matter how messy, and involve ourselves only in relations with the stable and friendly parts of the planet. In a world of nuclear-tipped ICBMs, in a world of cyber, in a world of terror that can fly airplanes into buildings all over the uh, East Coast of the United States, we can't exempt ourselves from the world. We got to get a hold of the world. James Jeffrey, America's former ambassador to Turkey and to Iraq, argues that the Middle East, not only our continental backyard, will demand American attention and action over the course of the Trump presidency. The question for policymakers in the new administration is not whether, but how to marshal American power and diplomacy. Join us for a conversation with Ambassador Jeffrey on U.S. grand strategy in the age of Trump. After this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. We're joined today by Ambassador James Jeffrey, the Philip Solon's Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the former U.S. Ambassador to Iraq and to Turkey. He's the co-author with Ambassador Dennis Ross of a new presidential transition study, General Principles to Guide U.S. Middle East Policy. You can find the full report online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Ambassador Jeffrey, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Scott. It's good to be here, and it's good to be able to talk about a theme that's so important to the American people, to the world, and to the new administration. Well, speaking of the new administration, if you were advising Secretary Mattis or Secretary Tillerson right now, What concrete steps would you recommend the administration take in the Middle East? First, take a deep breath. We've been at this for a long time. There's no need to rush, assuming we don't have a tactical battlefield emergency in any of our operations right now. We need to get things right. My recommendation on getting things right, to follow up on your question, is the biggest challenge is Iran. That doesn't mean priority doesn't go to ISIS. I think it should. But the biggest challenge to regional stability, to our friends and allies in the region, to our own security in the end, is Iran, its alliance with Russia, its impact on the region, even its impact on uh, promoting, uh, at least indirectly, Sunni Islamic uh, jihadism. So we have to focus on that. Secondly, we have to get our alliances back in order. We have specific... uh, battlegrounds with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with Turkey, with Egypt. As a guy who's practiced diplomacy out in that region for decades, you can't get anything done without these countries. We need to put our relations with them immediately on a better level, whatever it takes within reason. And there are some simple steps we could take with each of them. The administration knows this. I think they'll take it, but it has to be done. And it wasn't done on the last one. Let's watch. Before we turn back to Iran, one thing your report talks about, which I I suspect many people would find either unusual or counterintuitive, is is your emphasis on alliances as an interest unto themselves, an end unto themselves, rather than simply as a tool or an asset or a means to other strategic ends. Can you explain a little bit more why you would call the maintenance and nurturing of our alliances and partnerships an interest unto itself? I would be happy to, because this has come up in the campaign, and I don't think 
any of the candidates, including the current president, did a good job explaining the reality to the American people. To be secure, even America has to live in a world that has an international order that isn't threatening to it. There are various ways that order can be set up and looked at, but the way we've chosen since World War II is not the way of the Roman Empire to dominate everything ourselves with our legions marching everywhere, and not the way of the 19th century with a whole series of competing power centers uh, looking like a ping pong table full of colored balls slamming against each other, ultimately leading to World War I and World War II. Rather, we have done this through a collective security alliance system, basically variants of what Woodrow Wilson proposed in 1917. The logic of it is, if we can leverage our values, our power, our order through other countries who are tied in with us, who benefit from that order, who support that order, that becomes a multiplier factor. We don't have to provide all of the troops. We can turn to local surrogates to do much of the work, as we're doing in the fight against ISIS, so that we can be active in many areas. We can be doing things to pressure the Russians in Eastern Europe. We can have our Navy sailing around in the South China Sea, and we can be pushing ISIS back at the same time without breaking the bank are putting ourselves back at home on a WA footing because we can rely on these alliances. We make it more secure for them and they're closer to the threat. In the end, they help provide a more secure world that we can live in happily and peacefully without expending 20% of our GDP on these kind of operations. So our alliances then become almost a form of common good like the freedom of navigation, something that 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 isn't just a tool to achieve ends, but is itself a source of American strength and uh, security. Exactly. These uh, legal tools, freedom of navigation, free trade, international law, uh, the UN system, they're only as good as the participants in the system. And those participants are only as good as the organizing principle. The organizing principle that we have put together since World War II is a collective security system that's based upon not rolling back the bad guys. Every time we've tried that from North Korea to, frankly, Iraq in 2003, we've run into a lot of trouble, but rather defending our perimeter, be it South Korea in 1950 or Kuwait in 1990 or the Balkans in the 1990s, we are able to much easier motivate international support and motivate our own population to hold the line than we are to either go alone or try to push back uh, forces that oppose us. On Iran, what can the United States do in the next several years that can prevent an Iranian nuclear breakout after the expiration of the nuclear deal in the 2020s without threatening to scuttle the deal right now or in the interim? Scott, that's a good question on the deal. Uh, but let me take a step back, as you indicated, uh, the kind of threat Iran is. It's a unique threat because it meets all three separate criteria. On the one hand, it's a regional wannabe hegemon, like we saw with Milosevic in the Balkans, like we saw with Cuba and other communist movements in Central and South America, like we saw with Saddam 
in the Middle East. So Iran has an agenda to dominate the region and pull the region out of the international order and set up the kind of order we saw the great powers had in the 19th century, uh, to wit countries like Poland disappeared from the map because it was in the interest of great powers to do so. That's not the world we want to live in. Secondly, it is also in and of itself a radical Islamic movement of the Shia flavor, but nonetheless, it has the same ingredients, the idea of a region-wide super state based on religion and religious leaders and using tools like terrorism, think Hezbollah, think Argentina, to carry forth its writ. Thirdly, it is a ally of a country that at the global level wants to undermine the international order, and that's Russia. By in helping invite the Russians into Syria, Iran has deepened greatly the danger in the region. So how to keep the JCPOA agreement in effect during the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, because it runs out, certain aspects of it run out in each of those periods, and how to keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon afterwards. Rule one, stop Iran's march in the region. If you can contain Iran, that will introduce a dynamic that will make Iran less risk adverse at worst, and at best, possibly rethinking its role in the world. Two, whether it's with North Korea, or it's Russia in the Balkans, when anybody presses against our interests, the international agreements, international law, or more broadly, the global order, stand firm, take risks. If you have to push it to the point of war, do so. We did that 30 or 40 times in the Middle East and elsewhere since 1945. Once or twice, I admit it's gone badly. Most of the time it works, and it's the only way you can deter countries from doing specific things they think they can get away with. Make clear to the Iranians, nobody nowhere gets away with anything. Know how. That will also encourage the Iranians. Finally, and now we get to the agreement itself, we need to look at all of the <clears throat> specific time periods. There's one after five years of the agreement where the Iranians are released from certain commitments. There's one after eight years. There's also uh, requirements to uh, cleanse Iran of any suspicion that they have been violating the uh, non-proliferation treaty. Uh, that's hardwired after eight years, and there are other steps as well. We need to start, without challenging the substance of the agreement and our commitments, putting that under question. And finally, on areas apart from the nuclear one, areas where even the Obama administration made clear to Iran that we would not lift our sanctions and we would not give them a free pass, we need to carry that out. The Obama administration in the last six months had a ridiculously dismal record in that regard, and this administration needs to restore America's credibility here. I think that's my four-part plan. One thing that you mentioned is uh, policy of containment. In, in at least certain sectors of the American uh, foreign policy community, or perhaps maybe more broadly, the, the American political community, containment has, has gotten kind of a bad name. But in the Cold War, the strategy of containment was based on the idea that that was an active strategy when faced with an expansionist opponent or regional power, not a passive or defeatist or, or hands-off strategy. Are there lessons from the, the the Cold War doctrine of containment that, that we need to relearn when facing uh, not just Iran, but perhaps other regional uh, would-be uh, expansionist powers in other regions? Uh, well, I'm old enough to know the Cold War from uh, Vietnam to the Yom Kippur 
nuclear confrontation with the Soviets to uh, uh, serving in Bulgaria and the Warsaw Pact uh, territories in the 1980s. And here's the thing. Uh, of course, it was an active strategy. The th reason, though, it worked is also the reason that Americans kind of don't like it. It wasn't a decisive one roll of the dice, win or lose, off the field, victory or death. That's not how we played it, in part because we didn't want to do it all by ourselves. We wanted to do it with an international community. And believe me, they didn't want to roll the dice because they had much more to lose. Even if we won globally, <laughs> the, nobody knew which country would lose totally in this ballgame. So containment worked for everybody other than the bad guys. The second reason Americans didn't like it is it meant that we had to be involved in the world for a long time, and this involvement had costs. These costs typically particularly over the past 30 years, have been way below 5% of our GDP, a mere fraction of what we spend on entitlement programs for Americans. Those are important and good programs, but nonetheless, this is like an insurance policy, and it's a cheap insurance policy, and it also works because, as I said earlier, we can leverage our relationship with others and their commitments, be it in the military realm, be it in the foreign assistance realm, to help make the world orderly. The other thing that Americans like to do is say, we'll just wash our hands of the world and pull back behind our five and 3,000 mile uh, oceans. That doesn't work anymore. In a world of nuclear tipped ICBMs, in a world of cyber, in a world of terror that can fly airplanes into buildings all over the uh, East Coast of the United States, we can't exempt ourselves from the world. We got to get a hold of the world. Well, on that last point, in addition to emphasizing the uh, the maintenance of our alliances and partnerships as an interest unto itself, uh, your report with Ambassador Ross suggests that the promotion of American values is not necessarily a first order interest unto itself. Whereas I think for a lot of Americans, that's often seen as an important American interest uh, in any given region of the world. And in much of in, in Europe, in Asia, and in much of the Americas, that's been a reasonably successful point of American policy emphasis. If we de-emphasize the role of American values in our Middle East policy, do we risk encouraging a public mood of hostility to engagement there? That is a good argument for not tossing the baby out with the bathwater. I've never said we should ignore values. These are our values. Uh, we should emphasize them. But there's two things that we, the policy makers or advisors of policy need to know and that the informed American public needs to know. First of all, uh, it is very, very hard to inculcate values in another society that you don't know. Everybody out there listening, think of how hard it is to inculcate values in children. That's an easy, easy task as a father of two kids compared to trying to go out to a foreign country, a country that may not like us, a country that may not have the same culture as we do, and try to tell them how they should treat their old people, how they should treat people of other races and nationalities, how they should treat their women, how they should treat each other. What we can do is work to show them the advantages of specific steps. For example, rule of law, is a necessary prerequisite to getting foreign firms to invest greatly in a country. We can point out the Israels, the Singapores, up until very recently, the Turkeys, that have basically established pretty good rule of law systems, and that allows in foreign investment, foreign firms, foreign-funded uh, uh, jobs. 
That's a good thing. So we show it's in their own interest. Now, in the end, it's true. To cite Tom Friedberg's uh, McDonald's world rule, two countries that both have McDonald's don't go to war with each other. Well, actually, in 2008, with the Georgia-Russia war, they did. But by and large, it is true that if countries were democratic, we wouldn't have security problems. When is the last time that uh, Sweden threatened Norway? The problem is that's not the solution to our security problem if there's no way to chart between where these countries are right now. In some cases, it looks like, and I've been out there, Mad Max beyond Thunderdrome and someplace that looks like Denmark. We don't know how to do it. People say, yes, we do. Germany, Japan, those were already advanced modern countries. The best we can hope for is something like Plan Columbia, 30 years, $10 billion of American money, and we moved, we nudged the gauge enough to get a ceasefire and to get some uh, reconciliation and some a movement away from drugs and towards a modern economy. A modest victory, but an important one. But that shows there is no magic solution to these problems. You just got to work them over decades. In your report, you speak favorably of continued U.S. engagement to help resolve regional disputes. But you also caution against attempts to transform the region or, or fix the deep-seated problems that give rise to seemingly constant crises and threats. Can you explain what's the distinction between the problems that call for a hands-on American response and those that do not? How should policymakers and the public judge between those two categories of, of problems or challenges? Scott, it's easy for me to sit here and talk about what policymakers should and shouldn't do, but I've been on the receiving end of a lot of suggestions and had to help the president come up with a decision in five minutes, so I know the problems. Uh, my first rule is, Serious security threats that we can do something about and will be a blot on the international order if we don't, the classic one being uh, the slaughter of almost 1,500 civilians in Syria in 2013 through poison gas, demand an immediate response. Lock and load, buckle up, go in, and to the extent you can, make sure it makes sense, but act, damn it. Okay. Secondly, when you have these longer-term regional disputes, uh, many of which go back centuries, historical claims, we've seen this between the Arabs and the Israelis, the Israelis and the Palestinians, Turkey and Greece, the Kurds and anybody close to the Kurds, Pakistan and India. Um, first of all, do no harm to the extent possible. Move them from a flaming conflict to a latent conflict and from a latent conflict to what we call a frozen conflict, one where the two sides haven't given up their long-term goals officially, but they're not shooting at each other and they're not getting ready to shoot each other. That allows us to work on other problems that are more pressing and also wins us credibility and wins us basically uh, certain bragging rights that are useful in diplomacy. The thing we should least engage in is this idea that we can transform the region. President Bush had his version of it, which was to bring democracy to the peoples of the region. President Obama had his somewhat more diffuse, but also uh, Obama uh, secret sauce way to reach beyond governments to the peoples of the region with his Cairo speech and his letters to the Ayatollahs and all of that. That didn't work either. These things don't work. 
it's not just that you cannot work these things and transform countries into Denmark in a short enough period of time to maintain our attention span, which is notoriously limited, and to fix actual glaring uh, crises. It's also, to quote the former regional commander, CENTCOM commander, General Abizade, America creates antibodies. This is the hardest thing to explain to not just Americans out there uh, in our communities, but even knowledgeable people such as our military. We may be popular to our counterparts in the, some countries' counterterrorism uh, service or the diplomats who are our handlers in uh, Capital X, but to the peoples of all of these countries, we're pretty suspicious because we're big, we're powerful, we make mistakes, and when we make mistakes, they suffer more than us. That's all a burden that we have to carry, and it limits our ability to snap our fingers and tell these people how high they should jump because Rather than do that, they'll sit on their uh, rear ends or they'll throw something at us. Earlier, you, you spoke about Iran and, and one of the sources of its uh, destabilizing threats to the region, uh, its support for Shiite militias, not just Hezbollah, but increasingly across the landscape. Um, uh, Non-Hezbollah forces in, uh, in, in Syria, uh, we know Iran has been uh, setting up and sending uh, Afghan uh, Shiite militias, as well as supporting Hezbollah's foray into that theater, um, and increasing support for uh, a multitude of Shiite militias in Iraq, um, operating nominally right now against ISIS. But, um, you know, as we've seen in Lebanon, once you set up a Hezbollah, um, they don't turn it off once the proximate uh, uh, conflict is over. Yet Americans have mainly seen uh, the, the, the the greatest threat that emanates from the region as being Sunni extremism or jihadism uh, of the Al-Qaeda or Islamic State variety. So how should we think about and prioritize our response to those two threats, which almost seems like it could be a case of, uh, you know, let let them kill each other or wash our hands it it, it can it, it it's it's a seemingly confusing conflict since those two threats to us are themselves in conflict with one another they're in conflict with each other at some levels but i could spend an hour describing how iran has facilitated al qaeda and to some degree isis over the years uh, unless it's an extreme case they tend to stay out of each other's ways cuz they have a common enemy that they prefer to go after. That's the United States in the regional order. Let me talk about these Iranian surrogates. Uh, people might say America's calling uh, uh, the kettle black because, gee, uh, who did we use in Nicaragua, the Contras? Who did we use in Afghanistan, the Mujahideen? Who are we using in Syria to the extent we're still doing that? Uh, the PYD Kurds against ISIS, and we're still providing some support to the Free Syrian Army rebels against the Assad government. Sure, but those are purely means to an end. And the end is a rational global order that works around the basic principles of the modern international system, beginning with sovereign states that can decide their fates. These Iranian surrogates, whether it's Hezbollah or uh, Hazara militias that are plucked out of Afghanistan and shipped off to die in large numbers in Syria, they're not just a means to an end, they're the end. Iran's goal is to undermine authority in countries by developing, typically through an ideological religious relationship with, normally but not always, Shia local forces, the 
Arabs of southern Lebanon that became Hezbollah and to some degree Amal, obviously uh, the Houthis in Yemen and such, with the purpose of undermining the state system, creating a state within a state whose loyalties do not point to, a good example, downtown Beirut, but point to Tehran. This not only gives Iran a lot of leverage, but it's kind of the same mindset that the early Soviet Union had with communist parties all over Europe and elsewhere. Their first loyalty is to the mothership, not to the state they're in. And that is poison for the international system. It is poison for internal peace. And it is poison to the extent it lets Iran grow and dominate the region. If Iran is, is operating or seeing itself as a sort of shit international, are are the Sunni majority countries um, really under or, or facing that grave a threat then from, from Iran's uh, militia support? Well, the Sunni states are not perfect. The Sunni states, if they're not guided by us, will see this purely in terms of us versus them. The Shia survive and dominate us, or we survive and dominate them. We, of course, have always, in trying to restore peace and promote reconciliation, tried to get countries to go a third way. We didn't pick sides in the Balkans in the 1990s between the Orthodox Christians, uh, led but not only including Serbia, and the Islamic forces, uh, led by the um, uh, government of Bosnia, but many other forces, Albanians and others in the region. Rather, we told everybody there are standards. Thus, people from every group, Catholic Croats, Islamic uh, uh, Albanian rebel leaders and Serbian generals have all been hauled off to the courts to answer. It was their violation of values, their violation of laws, their violation of morality, their violation of the order that led us to react against them and eventually bring them to justice. Not because we were rooting for uh, the Sunni Muslims, regardless of what they did to the other side. If they had massacred 800 uh, Serbian Orthodox at Srebrenica, we would have been after them. We've been talking with Ambassador James Jeffrey. He's the co-author with Ambassador Dennis Ross of a new presidential transition study, General Principles to Guide U.S. Middle East Policy. You can find the full report online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Ambassador Jeffrey, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Scott. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance comes from multimedia editor Neil Orman. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music